Good to be together this morning. Appreciate this time of worship that we've been able to participate in together. And looking forward to this period of Bible study. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, appreciate Eli reading that for us in verses 1 through 13. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. There was a man who was interviewed on his 100th birthday, and the reporter, among a number of different questions that he asked him, asked him this question, out of your entire life, What are you most proud of? The man thought for a second. And he said, well, I guess I'm most proud of the fact that I don't have an enemy in this world. The reporter was amazed by that. He said, wow, that's so impressive. You're telling me that you don't have an enemy in this entire world out of all of these people. He said, yeah, that's right. Because I outlived every single one of them. This morning we're continuing to talk about the topic of temptation. Unlike the older man who we just talked about a few seconds ago, we have an enemy in temptation. And it's an enemy who we can't outlive. It's an enemy who we can't get away from. It's an enemy that we cannot get rid of. You know who that enemy is, don't you? 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 8 tells us who that enemy is. Notice Peter says, your adversary is the devil. We have an enemy in temptation, and Peter tells us that enemy is the devil. That enemy is Satan in a parallel account of what we're going to be talking about this morning from Luke chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 3, Satan, the devil, is actually described as the tempter. In temptation, Satan is our enemy. He's presenting temptations in our paths. Notice as you continue reading, he says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Like a lion, our enemy prowls with great stealth. Like a lion, he roars with great power and strength. He uses that stealth, power, and strength for one purpose. With one goal on his mind, and that is to devour us spiritually. That is to destroy our relationships with God. And so as we look at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13 this morning, let's spend some time thinking about our enemy in temptation. Thinking about the devil. Thinking about Satan. Thinking about how he works in the process of temptation. When we look at this story, which is the story of how Satan tempts our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, what do we learn about our enemy? What do we learn about the devil? What do we learn about Satan? What do we learn about how He seeks to devour us and to destroy us spiritually. There are a lot of different ideas that we could pull out of this passage about our enemy in Luke 4 verses 1-13. through I want to share three of them with you this morning. Number one, our enemy in temptation, one thing we need to acknowledge about him is that he presents diverse temptations. In other words, when Satan tempts us, he's not going to tempt us in the same exact way every single time. He's not always going to present the same temptations to us on a day in and day out basis. Our enemy presents diverse temptations, and I think we see that in this passage. When you go over to 1 John, the second chapter, and you look at verses 15 and 16, John is talking about a Christian's relationship with the world. 
Notice he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. Then he continues in verse 16 to talk about all that is in the world. Every temptation that we experience in the world. Every sin that is committed in the world falls into one of three categories. And he gives us those categories here in verse 16. First, he talks about the desires of the flesh. These are longings, desires, cravings that we have in our sinful and physical flesh for things that are sinful. Things that are contrary to God's will for our lives. You see the second category, the desires of the eyes in verse 16. These are longings, cravings, desires that we have that are activated by what we see. Something is placed right in front of our faces. Something is put right in front of our eyes. And it's meant to activate a desire, longing, craving for something sinful. And then the third category that's mentioned is the pride of life. This is being a prideful person. This is being an arrogant person. This is boasting not in the Lord, but boasting in ourselves. Boasting in who we are what we do, and what we have. Notice how those three categories show up when the serpent is tempting Eve back in Genesis 3 and verse number 6. The serpent is tempting her to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree that God had told Adam a chapter earlier to not eat from. But look at the temptation. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, what is that? That's the desires of the flesh. She also saw that the tree was a delight to the eyes. What's that? It's the desires of the eyes. Then thirdly, she saw that the tree was desired to make one wise. What's that? That's the pride of life. That's what we see in 1 John 2 and verse 16, isn't it? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, desires of the flesh, that it was the delight to the eyes, the desires of the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, the pride of life, she gives in to that temptation. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, Adam, who was with her, and he ate. I want us to see that those three categories of 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, they are not only present in the temptation of Eve in Genesis 3, but they're present in the temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. When Satan tempts Jesus, we read about those three specific temptations. He does not present the same temptation three different times. He presents diverse temptations. Satan in this passage takes everything that's available in the world and presents it right at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's think about these in detail. First, we see Satan presenting and appealing to the desires of the flesh in verses 2 and 3. As Jesus, in verse 1, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, the Bible says he was there for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. How would you feel if you hadn't eaten anything in 40 days? I don't know about you, but I can barely go 40 minutes without thinking about something to eat. Here, Jesus has gone 40 whole days and has not ate a single bite. Naturally, at the end of verse number 2, when those days were ended, He was hungry. So the devil steps in in verse 3. The devil said to Him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. There, Satan is tempting Jesus to use the empowerment of the Holy Spirit inappropriately. He's tempting Jesus to use the empowerment of the Holy Spirit selfishly to benefit Himself. 
He's tempting Jesus to doubt God's provision for him in the wilderness. He's tempting Jesus to act independently of God, to act on his own authority. And in doing that, he appeals to the desires of the flesh. Jesus, I know you haven't eaten in 40 days. You've got to be hungry, right? If you're really the Son of God, if you really have this great power, then why don't you take this rock right here and turn it into a piece of bread to satisfy this desire that your flesh has? First, he appeals to the desires of the flesh. But then we continue on, and Satan appeals to the desires of the eyes. Beginning in verse number 5, it says the devil took him up. Matthew fills in the gaps there in Matthew 4 and verse 8, saying that Satan took him up on a high mountain. And in some kind of vision, he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in just a single moment of time. We know that Satan is the enemy. We know that Satan is the tempter. But also consider how he's described in John 12 and verse 31. He's the ruler of this world. 1 John 5 and verse number 19 echoes that, saying that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He takes Jesus up on a high mountain in a vision. He shows Him all the kingdoms of the world in just a single moment of time. Jesus sees the desires of the eyes. He sees all the kingdoms, all the nations of the world in just a singular moment. And then here comes the temptation in verse number 6. He said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. There, Satan is not suggesting a transition of power. He's not saying to Jesus, I'll give you everything that I have. If Jesus were to give in to this temptation, then Satan, as the ruler of the world, would be the ruler over him. Satan would still be above him. Even if Jesus were to receive all of these kingdoms and nations, their glory and their authority from Satan, he's bowing the knee to Satan. He's worshiping Satan, and so Satan would still be over him. But you can see the desires of the eyes. He's placing something before Jesus' eyes and attempting to activate desire. You want all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, don't you? You want people to live under your reign, don't you? Don't you want all people and all kingdoms and all nations to serve you? Just bow the knee to me, Satan says. Worship me and I will give you all of this as the ruler of this world. He roots that temptation in the desires of the eyes. Jesus looking at the kingdoms of the world and then the temptation being placed before Him. And then, number three, Satan appeals to the pride of life. When you look at chapter 4, beginning in verse number 9, Satan, the third temptation, takes him to the city of Jerusalem, sets him on the pinnacle, the highest point of the temple. This would have been hundreds of feet up in the air, it's estimated. And he said to him, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Here they are, hundreds of feet in the air. If you're truly the Son of God, then go ahead and jump off of this. Go ahead and throw yourself down from here. And as we'll talk about in just a few moments, he roots that in a quotation of Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He'll command his angels concerning you to guard you on their hands. They will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and says, show how special you are. Show this exalted, elevated position that you have. Go ahead and jump off here. Hundreds of feet up in the air. God's going to save you. 
He's going to send His angels to bear you up. They won't even allow you to strike your foot against a stone. They won't even allow you to stub your pinky toe as you're falling down. Show how special you are. Show how God will step in and intervene. The pride of life. Also consider that the temple was a public place. People were constantly coming in and out both day and night in order to worship God. This wasn't taking place in a private setting. This was taking place in a public setting. It's not just show me how great you are, but show all of these people down here how great you are, how, how God will save you if you choose to jump off the top of this building. He appeals to the pride of life in chapter 4, verses 9-11. through 11. You can see, as Satan tempts Jesus... He doesn't present the same temptation three different times. Satan presents diverse temptations. He takes all that's in the world, all that the world has to offer, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life, and presents it to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What do we learn about our enemy in temptation? Our enemy in temptation presents diverse temptations. As people, we tend to be creatures of habit, don't we? We like to do the same things at the same time in the same ways. Do you have routines that you go through every single day? Even today, whenever you drove here, did you park in the same parking spot that you always park in? Right now, are you sitting in the same seat that you always sit in? We're creatures of habit. We like to do the same things at the same times in the same ways. We, we stick to our habits. We stick to our routines. Unless Satan finds something that works in your life, he's not going to be a creature of habit. He's not going to present the same temptation time after time after time. Satan presents diverse temptations. Sometimes he's going to present a temptation that is rooted in the desires of the flesh to us. And he's going to try to draw us, entice us away from God by the longings, the cravings that we have for things that are contrary to God's will for our lives. Sometimes he's going to present to us a temptation that's rooted in the desires of the eyes. He's going to place something right in the middle of our paths. He's going to place something right in front of our faces to try to activate some kind of desire for something sinful, wicked, or evil. Sometimes... Satan's going to present temptations to us that are based on the pride of life. Satan wants you to be prideful. He wants you to be arrogant. He wants you to think that you're better than everybody else. Satan wants you to have an elevated view of who you are, what you can do, and what you have. Satan doesn't present the same temptation time after time after time. He presents diverse temptations. I think we can learn that from this passage. The second idea that I want us to see from this passage is that Satan attempts to use God's Word against us. We find that in verses 10 and 11. We just noticed three specific temptations from Satan to Jesus. Jesus responds to those temptations in the exact same way every single time. The first two times, He says, it is written. The third time, He uses the closely related phrase, it is said. And he quotes and applies a passage from the book of Deuteronomy to stand up to the temptation that Satan is presenting to him. That's significant for us to note. But it's also important for us to see in this passage that Jesus is not the only one who's capable of quoting Scripture. 
Jesus is not the only one who knows Scripture and attempts to apply Scripture in this setting. Notice when you look at verse number 9 again, when Satan takes Jesus to the city of Jerusalem and sets Him on the pinnacle of the temple, hundreds of feet in the air, He said to him, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Then He takes a phrase that Jesus has said two times in this passage, for it is written. And He quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He, God, will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Does Satan know Scripture? Apparently he does. Does Satan know Scripture so well that he can quote it by heart? He does. The question we have to consider though, is Satan using Scripture appropriately? And I think that's where we have to give the answer no. That Satan is not looking to use Scripture appropriately. Think about how he's attempting to interpret and apply Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 in this context. They're standing hundreds of feet in the air. Appealing to the pride of life. Jesus, You're so special. Why don't You just go ahead and jump off? Why don't You just go ahead and throw Yourself down from here? Because You know what the Bible says. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 91 that God's not going to allow you to go through any pain. He's not going to allow you to hurt yourself. That if you were to jump down from here, He's going to send His angels to guard you. And His angels would catch you in midair, And they're going to bear you up in their hands and not allow you to strike your foot against a stone. You won't even stub your pinky toe if you choose to jump off the pinnacle of the temple here because the Bible says that God will send His angels to guard you. Is that really what Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12 are saying? Is Psalm 91, 11 and 12 a promise that, hey, you can jump off the top of a building and God's going to send His angels to save you? When you look at Psalm 91, you have to recognize that these are words of poetry. These words are not meant to be interpreted literally. They're meant to be interpreted figuratively. This is a figurative way of saying, when you look at the whole context, God's going to protect, He's going to guard, and He's going to be with those who decide to take refuge in Him. Satan is misinterpreting and misapplying that passage of Scripture in his temptation of Jesus. He's using God's Word against Jesus. I think we can see how foolish that interpretation and application is if we put ourselves in that situation. Here's what we'll do after services. I want you to line up here at the pulpit and when services are over, we're going to go outside, get on top of the building, and one by one, you can go ahead and just jump off of the building. You can throw yourself off of the building because we know what the Bible says, right? God's going to send His angels and, and they'll bear us up and won't allow us to hit the ground. We won't even strike our foot against a stone. See, when we put ourselves in that situation, we can see how foolish that interpretation and application is. Imagine if I were to throw that offer out there, I wouldn't have many people who would take me up on that because Satan is using God's Word inappropriately. And from that we learn, here's something that Satan's going to try to do. He's going to attempt to use God's Word against us. Maybe we don't think about that as much as we should. We expect Satan to tempt us to do sinful things. We expect what we've already talked about. 
We expect Satan, based on our desires, to lure us and to entice us into a place that's contrary to God's will for our lives. We expect Satan to present to us temptations that are based on the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way that Satan is supposed to work. Maybe we need to spend a little bit more time thinking about this idea. Satan knows Scripture probably better than you and I know Scripture. Satan has the ability to quote Scripture, probably more so than you and I do. And he's going to use his knowledge of Scripture against us to attempt to devour our relationships with our Creator and our Savior. If Satan can't make you do something sinful, he's going to try to get you to buy into a misinterpretation and a misapplication of the Scriptures. Do you think that's a reason why there's so much religious division in our world? Do you think that could be a reason why there's so many different and sometimes contradictory teachings that all claim to come from the same book? The book that we're holding in our hands? Do you think Satan could potentially be involved in that? If Satan can't make you bad then he's going to try to get you to misunderstand and misapply the Word of God. Because sometimes Satan doesn't look like sin on the outside. Sometimes he doesn't look like evil and wickedness on the outside. The Scriptures tell us that sometimes Satan disguises himself as an angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse number 14. We know how important the Word of God is to us as Christians, don't we? We know from Psalm 119 verses 105 that the Word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We know that the Scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15. We know that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the, or through the Word of Christ. When we hear the words of Jesus, we're able to develop faith and trust and belief in Jesus. Commitment to Jesus. We know from Psalm 119 and verse 11 that when we store up God's Word in our hearts, we're not going to sin against Him. Satan wants to take one of the most important things that we can hold in our hands this side of eternity. The Word of God. And use it against us. If Satan can't convince you to do something sinful, he's going to try to get you to buy into a misinterpretation and a misapplication of the Scriptures. He attempts to use God's Word against us. That's why Bible study is so important. That's why it's so important for us every day to have our minds and to have our hearts in the Scriptures so that we can stand up against Him. And then finally, number three, our enemy in temptation, we need to know that He doesn't give up. We need to know that He is very persistent. We looked at three specific temptations in this passage. Are those the only times that Satan tempts Jesus in Luke 4, verses 1-13? through 13? Back up to verses 1 and 2 for just a minute where it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. How long was He in the wilderness? For 40 days. What was happening to Him while He was in the wilderness? He was being tempted by the devil. Satan didn't just tempt Jesus three times and that was it. He tempted Jesus consistently and persistently for 40 whole days. Think about what that would have looked like. Jesus enters into the wilderness on day one and Satan's there. He tempts him the entire day. But then he doesn't give up. He's there on day number two as well. 
And then he's there on day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven, all the way to day number 40. Our enemy doesn't give up. He's very persistent. After tempting Jesus for 40 days, that's where we read about the three specific temptation accounts of verse 3, verses 5 through 7, and verses 9 through 11. Satan presents the first temptation. Jesus stands up to it. And so he doesn't give up. He presents another one. Jesus stands up to the second temptation, so Satan presents a third temptation. Jesus stands up to the third temptation, so Satan departs from him. He ends those temptations and never ever comes back. He knows that tempting Jesus is a lost cause, so he's never going to try it again. Well, that's not the message. When you look at Luke chapter 4 and verse number 13, the Bible says that the devil had ended every temptation, that he did depart from Jesus, but he departed from him until an opportune time. He departed from Jesus, but that didn't mean that he wasn't coming back. He left Jesus, but then continued looking for the perfect moment in his mind to step back into Jesus' life to try to draw him away from his Father. What do we learn from this story about our enemy and temptation? We learn that he doesn't give up. We learn that he is very persistent. My favorite superhero is Spider-Man. In 2002, they came out with the first live-action Spider-Man movie, and I remember watching it. I've watched it I don't know how many times since then. Towards the beginning of the movie, when Peter Parker is just starting to figure out his powers, he's just starting to figure out what's happening to him, there's a scene where he's at the lunchroom in high school. He's sitting at a table eating his lunch. His crush named Mary Jane is walking by. He sees her as she's carrying her tray slip on some juice that had been spilt on the ground. She falls back. Her tray goes up in the air. It looks like the food's going to go all over the place. But if you've seen this movie, you know what happens. His powers allowed him in just a split second to jump up. He catches Mary Jane with one arm, catches the tray with the other arm. But he doesn't just catch the tray. He catches all the food on top of the tray and balances it perfectly. Did you know that in filming that scene, it took them 156 takes to get it right? They didn't use any CGI. They didn't edit it at all. They shot that scene 156 times until they got it right. You know what that means? That means that they did it wrong 155 times. That means that they messed it up 155 different times. But finally, on the 156th try, He was able to catch her, catch the tray, and then catch all of the food. That's persistent. I don't know about you, but if I was in that movie, if I was Tobey Maguire, I probably would have given up after the fifth or sixth try. I'd say, look, you guys just need to find a little bit more money to CGI this or to edit this somehow. Don't know if I would have been in for that. But that's what our enemy is like. Our enemy is persistent. He doesn't give up. If it takes him 156 tries... It takes him 156 tries. And he's willing to do that. He's willing to invest that time. He's willing to invest that energy. James 4 and verse 7 is a beautiful promise. Where the Bible says we can resist the devil and he'll flee from us. That's what happens in this passage. We can stand up to Satan and he'll end those temptations and he will depart from us. But that doesn't mean that he's not going to come back. Satan might flee. Satan might depart. But he's always looking for that opportune moment to step into our lives and pull us away from our Father. Our enemy in temptation. Don't you think we need to spend some more time 
thinking about Him than we oftentimes do. We need to know how He works. We need to know what He does. We find three ideas in this passage. Our enemy presents diverse temptations. He attempts to use God's Word against us. And he certainly does not give up. Aren't you thankful this morning that we're not ignorant of Satan's designs? We're not ignorant of his schemes to be outwitted by him. We are not ignorant of how he works. The Bible tells us exactly how Satan works so that we can stand up against him. So this week, as we close, I just briefly want to give you some words to consider so that we might be able to stand up against Satan and the temptation he presents. First, we're going to stand up against Satan in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. We have to be sober-minded. We have to control the way that we think. Because when you control the way that you think, you control the way that you live. When you control the way that you think, you will control the way that you respond to the temptations that are presented to you on a daily basis. So be sober-minded. But then the second idea, be watchful. Maybe sometimes that's our problem. We don't pay attention to what's going on in our lives like we should. We don't pay attention to the spiritual warfare that's taking place around us. We don't pay attention to the desires that are growing within us. The longings, the cravings for things that are sinful. We need to be watchful. We need to pay attention to what's going on inside of us and what's going on outside of us. But then look at verse 9. Resist him. Stand up to Satan. Satan does not have any power over you that you don't allow him to have. So we resist him firm in our faith. If we're going to stand up to Satan, we have to place both feet in Jesus and say, I'm not going anywhere. This is where I'm going to stay. I'm not going to be moved. And then in Ephesians 6 and verse 11, we put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Satan is plotting against you. Satan's intentional. He knows your weaknesses and he is scheming about how he can devour your relationship with the Lord. So trust in the Lord. Stand in his strength and his might. Put on his armor in Ephesians 6 and verse number 11. And perhaps most importantly, if we're going to stand up to our enemy in temptation, we have to follow our example in temptation. Lord willing, that's what we're going to talk about two weeks from today in our final lesson on this short series on temptation when we see what our enemy is doing, we have to respond like our perfect example, Jesus Christ. So we'll return to this passage a couple weeks from now, the Lord wills, and we'll spend some time thinking about Jesus as our example in temptation. As we said, Satan doesn't have any power in our lives that we don't allow him to have. What kind of power have you allowed Satan to have in your life? We'd love to help you with that as together we stand and sing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh.